0: The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark.
1: Oh, it's a long, long while, from May to November... But the days grow short when you reach September. September 1st, 2020, in a normal American presidential season, this would be the beginning of the final leg. Uh, But the supposedly ascendant campaign doesn't have any legs and doesn't want them. From the Associated Press, opening paragraph, three credited reporters from the AP wrote this without a sliver of irony. Joe Biden is mounting a more aggressive offence against President Donald Trump with a rare public appearance Monday. A rare public appearance by a man who's running for President of the United States. He makes J.D. Salinger look like Cher. President presumptive Biden spoke before an audience of several dozen socially distant supporters. That's a big crowd for him. Another hundred waited outside but didn't even get a glimpse of Joe in his limousine being driven back to his basement. You know, lockdown staggers on, but there is no one on the planet more responsibly locked down than Joe Biden. Truly, when all the rest of us are dead of the COVID, he will be the last man, the sole survivor. Uh, Judging from the backdrop uh, on Monday, he appeared to be in a cage, perhaps at the Pittsburgh Zoo, uh, like Charlton Heston in Planet of the Apes. But it turned out to be a former steel mill that's been repurposed as something else, a uh, Chinese virology clinic uh, or whatever. Uh, remember Biden on the stump in New Hampshire, the staggering woozy disaster of uh, whatever he was in the end, the fifth place, fourth place candidate calling young co-eds faced pony soldiers? A couple of weeks later, it was Super Tuesday. James Clyburn delivered the black vote to Biden. Everyone dropped out in nothing flat and campaign 2020 went into lockdown, where it's been for six months. Gee, it's almost like Chairman Xi planned it this way. Perhaps we're all in the Pittsburgh Zoo. Back in the spring when we were talking about something that actually mattered, China, I said rather modernly that America seemed less like a great power than a great power theme park like the Disneyland rides at uh, Splash Mountain and Pirate's Grotto, and we all just caper around doing the same great power rituals over and over, running up debt, sending more troops to Afghanistan and Syria... Uh, while the Politburo gets on undisturbed with taking over the world and then unwinds for an hour every evening having a cocktail and uh, a good laugh watching us prancing around revolving on ourselves in Alexis de Tocqueville's great phrase. Brilliantly tailored uh, for the age of social media, though he said it two centuries uh, ago. Uh, Then the looting began and we stopped talking about China and Covid, although we shouldn't have. Basically, Chairman Xi is making the free world bear the catastrophic cost of his lies and his wickedness and bear it forever, as is entirely obvious as the fortnight to flatten the curve enters its third quarter. But that image of us all running around unaware that we're just capering in a theme park for the amusement of the chai comms, has stayed with me and actually intensified. I mean, if China is the most important issue facing the world right now, what would you say is the least important? Confederate statuary? Whether or not Australia's coon cheese is racist because it's named after a white cheesemaker called Mr Coon? Whether or not songs like Rule Britannia should be just outright banned or performed merely instrumentally without their lyrics, Uh, whether one of the great benefactors of the British Museum, Hans Sloane, needs to be disappeared because his wife inherited some plantation profits from her first husband... Whether the founder of the Sierra Club should be toppled from his plinth because 14 years after his death, a fitful associate of his started taking an interest in eugenics. Truly, is there any greater misnomer than woke? Woke. You're a gay man living in Amsterdam, or the East End of London, and you've begun to notice that not only have all the gay pubs mysteriously vanished, but even the non-gay pubs are starting to disappear, and it's getting hard to get a drink round here. But fortunately you're woke, so you know that J.K. Rowling's transphobia is the thing to worry about. Woke means let's go back to sleep for another decade or two until China and the Mullers And anybody else able to focus on things that matter has managed to take over everything while you were worrying that intersexuals were getting left off the NBA line of social justice merchandising. What's going on is almost a parody of cultural revolution, indeed, of revolution. Revolutions are always a coalition between the mob that wants to torch and burn and the respectable classes for whom years of comfort have bred. Uh, an an awful enervating ennui and so made them hot for the frisson of revolution the frisson and by the time they realise oh the frisson is beginning to turn into the real thing it's too late As I said, this is almost like a brilliant satire of revolutionary moments. After all, there's nothing more respectable and middle class than national public radio with its soporific voices punctuated by classical bumper music that sounds like it should be playing in a chain croissant store. So the nice ladies who listen listened the other day to a nice lady interview another nice lady about her new book in defence of looting. Uh, the author Vicky Osterweil is perfectly upfront about what she's defending. Quote When I use the word looting, I mean the mass expropriation of property, mass shoplifting during a moment of upheaval or riot. That's the thing I'm defending. Looting is a highly racialized word from its very inception in the English language. It's taken from Hindi. Lut, which means goods or spoils, and it appears in an English colonial officer's handbook on Indian vocabulary in the 19th century. Ooh, an English colonial officer's handbook, kind of that. If words originating in British India are highly racialized, then it's time to give up your cashmere and khakis, your bandanas and bungalows, and better throw away those pyjamas and sleep in the nude. Vicky Osterweil points out that there's no point distinguishing between some fancy pants, bazillion dollar multinational like Starbucks or Macy's and the little mom and pop store that's been on the corner for 40 years, because the little mom and pop think exactly the same way as the multinationals do. They're just multinational, exploitative mom and pops who never quite made it. Quote, When it comes to small business, family-owned business or locally-owned business, they are no more likely to provide worker protections. They are no more likely to have to provide good stuff for the community than big businesses. It's actually a Republican myth that has, over the last 20 years, really crawled into even leftist discourse, that the small business owner must be respected, that the small business owner creates jobs and is part of the community. But that's actually a right-wing myth, unquote. Oh, uh, before I go and burn down my small-town general store, one more quote. Looting's most basic tactical power as a political mode of action attacks the idea of property and it attacks the idea that in order for someone to have a roof over their head or have a meal ticket, they have to work for a boss in order to buy things that people just like them somewhere else in the world had to make under the same conditions. It points to the way in which that's unjust. And the reason that the world is organised that way, obviously, is for the profit of the people who own the stores and the factories. So you get to the heart of that property relation and demonstrate that without police and without state oppression, we can have things for free. Unquote. One thing you can't have f- for free, though, is Vicky Osterwald's book because she and her publisher take a more conventional view of quote the idea of property and that property relation uh, when it comes to their own property. On the very first page of In Defence of Looting, Ms. Osterwald's publishers, the multinational Ashet Group, which is part of the even more multinational Lagardère Group, warn you: don't even think of looting Vicky's property. Quote, the scanning, uploading and distributing of this book without permission is a theft of the author's intellectual property. Thank you for your respect of the author's rights. Translation, thank you for not looting her book about looting because she's looking forward to her royalties. Can we burn her house down instead? Well, fortunately for her, people don't seem to know where she lives, but they know where Ted Wheeler, the mayor of Portland, lives. And as his town descends deeper into mayhem and murder, for 95 nights now, no one has been more assiduous in pandering to the mob than Mayor Ted. Uh, They repaid him by seizing and occupying his condo building and shouting, F. Ted Wheeler. (laughs) And this is the 95th straight night of protests in Portland. That group started the night in the North Park blocks. Then they marched a few blocks, about four blocks, to a condo complex they believe to be the home of Mayor Ted Wheeler. This is a live look at the scene right now. They've lit a fire in the street. Traffic is blocked at Gleason around 9th and 10th Avenues. And our crew on the scene says they don't really see a police presence. Well, these protesters are calling for Mayor Wheeler's resignation Will they kill him? Well, probably not, because for the moment, even in Portland, the Jerry Falwell Jr. Police Department that likes to stand to one side and watch would probably feel obliged to investigate the killing of the mayor. But if you're not the mayor, you can be killed with impunity and the mob will celebrate your murder. This is how they cheered the killing of a member of the... Conservative Patriot Prayer Group over the weekend. And tonight I just got word, the person who died was a Patriot transport person. He was a Nazi. Our community held its own and took out the trash. I am not going to shed any tears over a Nazi. I am not sad that a fascist died tonight. As I said three months ago when this started, a mob that gets off on decapitating statues will soon move on to real-life human beings. The bloodlust is in full flight, and all our pathetic, appeasing leaders do is throw more chum to the beasts. The great disappointment of the Summer of Stupid, for me personally, is my old chum Boris Johnson. One of the savviest sneers at Boris during his imprisonment, probable rise uh, these last three or four years is that he was a literate Trump, uh, by which the sneerers meant that he liked books. He knows his history. He can quote great men. He can speak Latin and Greek off the cuff, which means he should have been the perfect person to lead the resistance to the culture wars, to the historical vandalism and the destruction of great art like the road to Mandalay and harmless pleasures like the singing of Rule Britannia. Here's Boris on the latter. I want to say one more thing. I'm going to say one more thing because because I was going to tweet about this. But I just want to say that uh, and, and, and they're trying to restrain me from saying this. But I, 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 if it is correct, which I cannot believe that it really is. But if it is correct that the BBC is saying that they will not uh, sing the words of land of hope and glory in rural britannia as, they, as as they traditionally do at the end of, of last night of, of the prompts. i think it's time we stopped our cringing embarrassment about our history about our traditions and about our culture and we stopped this general bout of self-recrimination and wetness i wanted to get that off my chest boris sounds butch there emphasizing that his minders would rather he didn't weigh in on this stuff But as his and my former boss Charles Moore pointed out, wetness doesn't really cover it. As Charles says in The Spectator, the attacks on our history are not wet, but fiercely pointed and carefully planned. They need coordinated resistance. Charles is right. And the only one really being wet here is Boris himself. Tales for Our Time, Songs of the Week, and of course, The Mark Stein Show. Stein Online is your one-stop shop for all things Stein. Members of the Mark Stein Club have access to the full catalog of Stein content, transcripts, and discounts, as well as the opportunity to ask Mark questions and engage with other club members in our comment section. Join the Mark Stein Club today by heading to www.steinonline.com. That's www.steinonline.com. The Mark Stein Club presents The 100 Years Ago Show A new nation, an unprecedented knockout and no corporal punishment for corporals It's September
0: 1920 A hundred years from today
1: For World News Update, the messy aftermath of the Great War continues. In Warsaw, the Foreign Minister of Poland has sent an urgent telegram to the League of Nations asking its Council to arbitrate the border dispute with Lithuania. Elsewhere in Europe. The now greatly expanded Kingdom of Romania has become the 39th member state of the League of Nations, and also the 26th party to approve the grand settlement of the Treaty of Versailles. In post-Ottoman Arabia we have a new state, Grand Liban, or Great Lebanon. The new Lebanese entity was carved out of France's new Syrian mandate by the French Republic's High Commissioner, General Henri Gouraud, in order to create a nation in waiting for the Maronite Christians and to insulate them from the ongoing ructions in the self-proclaimed Arab Kingdom of Syria. However, the territory of Grand Liban, Great Lebanon, has been drawn to encompass the former Ottoman Mount Lebanon Mutasarrifate, as well as the Beirut Vilayet, Tahr, the Bakar Valley and Baalbek, and some observers think the inclusion of such large Muslim populations makes future conflict inevitable. are in the market for a new school for the Shah's brother. Applying to matriculate at Roberts College in Constantinople, where all the teachers are American, Prince Mejid was told no one would address him as prince and he would be spanked for bad behavior. The prince replied that he wants to be a yank and he's willing to take a spank. On the subject of corporal punishment, here's a corporal.
0: Rappity, rapidly tow, row, row, right about the night lens, if I'm like for a die, why, Jimmy says I, I'll die, I have a broken head. right about the night lens, if I'm like for a die, why, Jimmy says I, I'll
1: die, I have a broken head. The corporal willing to die of a broken head, sir, but an Indian corporal need no longer fear corporal punishment. At Westminster, the British Parliament has amended the 1911 Indian Army Act to abolish corporal punishment for soldiers in the Indian Army. In the British Army, such punishments were abolished almost four decades ago. But under the Indian Army's summary court martial procedure, a soldier could still be sentenced to up to 50 lashes. Flogging may be out, but India has just seen a new and grisly form of punishment. An unprecedented use of acid to disfigure one's opponent. In the Bombay presidency, Ali Mohammed Farag was found to have thrown sulfuric acid in the face of Abdullah Mohammed Jabli. Whether this novel form of vicious assault spreads. We shall have to see. It's never too early for funeral planning. Kai Din, the emperor of Vietnam, has ordered construction to begin in the capital of Hue on his mausoleum. The emperor is just 35, but on the other hand, he is somewhat unpopular. It's not just Italy that's under siege from Bolshevik subversives. In the United States, 20 members of the Communist Party of America have been arrested in raids on six homes near Springfield, Illinois. Five of the Reds... Have confessed to a plot to derail the pride of the Illinois Central Railroad, the Diamond Special. But Justice Department agents also found counterfeiting machinery, 25 pounds of dynamite, six machine guns, and $10,000 worth of stolen merchandise.
0: Here's a Japanese. An old second-hand man will buy your old days from you. He will take every sorrow of the day that is through. And he'll bring you tomorrow just to start life anew.
1: Japanese Sandman sounds very easy to do business with in Nora Bay's latest appealing song, but would you want him buying the house across the street? In California, they don't, the state's anti-Japanese land referendum bill would bar American citizens of Japanese descent from owning land in California. Governor William Stevens was invited by U.S. Secretary of State Bainbridge Colby to discuss his plans. Afterwards, the governor insisted that the referendum on what he calls the Japanese problem cannot be set aside. On the last day of August, the U.S. submarine S-5 made a dive off Cape Henelopen on the Pennsylvania coast. The submarine then got trapped, and it looked as if 40 crew members would be lost. All, however are now saved after the ingenious seaman drilled a hole through the hull and poked a pole up through to the surface with a shirt tied to it as a distress signal. The Panamanian liner General W.G. Girtles saw the shirt and was able to attach grappling hooks to the sub to hold it in position and prevent its sinking and then cut through the stern to pump air into the vessel. There was no such happy ending for the Junkers JL-6 aeroplane Five days before the United States Post Office uh, launched its transcontinental airmail service, it lost its pilot, Max Miller, and mechanic Gustav Rearson in a fiery crash near Morristown, New Jersey. In sports news, the heavyweight boxing champion, Jack Dempsey, knocked out the challenger, Billy Misk in the third round at Benton Harbour in Michigan. It was the first time the St Paul Thunderbolt has ever been knocked out, and afterwards, the victorious Dempsey carried Misk back to his corner. However, the fight itself was perhaps less significant than the fact that for the first time ever, a boxing match was transmitted by wireless. To dozens of homes in the Detroit area by the new broadcasting station 8MK. More innovations. Do you know what a cafeteria is? It's a different style of dining experience. When you enter the restaurant, you aren't shown to a table and invited to peruse the menu by the head waiter. Instead, you line up with a tray at a display of the food and select your preferred dishes as you go. In Mobile, Alabama, the first such cafeteria-style restaurant is now open. Morrison's Cafeteria. The birth of a nation, the death of an actor. Robert Harron, who starred in D.W. Griffith's Great Picture and in Intolerance and in other motion pictures, accidentally shot himself in the chest after a poorly received New York preview of his latest film, Coincidence. Back in his hotel room, he was taking some clothes from his trunk when a gun fell to the floor and discharged, puncturing Mr. Hammond's lung. The actor called down to the front desk and, not thinking it a serious wound, joked that he was in a bit of a fix In Bellevue Hospital, he was moved to the prison ward after police determined his gun possession was in breach of the Sullivan Act. Mr. Harron was said to be depressed about the breakup of his relationship with screen siren Dorothy Gish, but friends had rejected suicide theories and were predicting a full recovery. Instead, Robert Harron is dead at the age of 27. And that's the way of the world, September 1920.
0: A hundred years from today. A hundred years from today.
1: Oh, you know what this music means. Mark's Mailbox is on the air. On Monday, I mourned the toppling and decapitation of Canada's first Prime Minister, Sir John A. Macdonald, from his beautiful Belle de Chien in the heart of Montréal, Dominion Square. Sabre Mike Carroll. Uh, I always feel we should get out the hatcheturian whenever we say Saber Mike's name. Uh, Saber Mike Carroll, a New York member of the Mark Stein Club, says, How sad is it that I'm grateful the Vimy Memorial is in France where the loathsome troglodytes can't get their filthy hands on it. Also saw somewhere that all the signs the morons made advertising their display of idiocy were in English only which basically screams, we all came in from Ontario. Uh, Well, I'm not sure about that last bit, Mike. There are plenty of Anglo idiots at McGill and Concordia. Uh, But you're right uh, on the general principle. Quebec police's language very zealously, the Office de la Langue Française, is currently prosecuting some sex toys emporium because it imported some sex aids from America with no French instructions on them. And thus, uh, Quebecers who buy them uh, could easily injure themselves uh, in their erotic adventures and overburden the medical system in this time of COVID. Uh, So you're right that it was basically an act of illegal Anglo-supremacism in the heart of a great French city had Canadian Anglophones attempted that in any other cultural context, Uh, gathering to sing God Save the Queen, or to urinate on a giant trough of poutine, uh, or to gamble and frolic on Mont Royal using only unilingual English sex toys. All Canadian media. Coast to coast would have deplored the cultural disrespect. But when Anglos decide to topple Montreal statuary, suddenly that's not an issue. Uh, on the broader point, you're also right, Mike. When everything you can smash has been smashed in Britain, Canada, et al., uh, those Commonwealth War memorials on French soil will still be standing. Uh, We should probably uh, do a whole show on this, but here's the general outline. In what we used to call Christendom, sanity drains as you move west. In Eastern Europe, the Hungarians, uh, the Bulgars, the Poles and so forth still think like conventional nation-states, more or less. Then you move to Western Europe. France has all the usual nonsense about uh, anti racism Uh, But as Adam put it in the comments section yesterday, they haven't refined that as anti-Frenchness. Indeed, they're very keen on being French. But when you move further west to the English-speaking nations, to Britain, Canada, America, they are becoming ever more explicitly anti-English. That's to say huge numbers of the English are anti-English, huge numbers of Americans are anti-American, huge numbers of Canadians are anti-Canadian, huge numbers of Australians are anti-Australian, which is why things like Australia Day, the national holiday, uh, the maple leaf, the national flag, Land of Hope and Glory, uh, an English de facto national anthem for the purposes of things like the Commonwealth Games. Um, In America, statues of Abraham Lincoln, and indeed everyone on Mount Rushmore, are suddenly controversial. Uh, In the Anglo world, a dramatic percentage of its beneficiaries want to be something else, anything else. That's why you have, as in... Burlington, Vermont, the other night, all-white Black Lives Matter protests. And nobody laughs that there's not a single black life in the Black Lives Matter protest. Uh, that's why some of the most prominent and violent rioters uh, in Portland and Seattle are these sad vicious hyper-trannies. If you happen to wander a block too far in Kenosha, you can probably handle being jumped by a bunch of white, trusty-fundy, cis-pajama boys. But if the psycho-trannies get you, you're going to be in the ICU for six weeks until your loved ones decide to unplug you. When they've destroyed everything and they're kings or transgender queens uh, on an empire of rubble, they will still be miserable and self-loathing, but they will destroy everything unless we have a coordinated pushback, not just, uh, well, we understand that people are upset about our complicated and imperfect history, but an active Pro-Lincoln, pro-McDonald, pro-Churchill, pro-smuts, pro-Captain Cook, pro-Rule Britannia with the singing of every single bloody verse, even if we're here till two in the morning, pushback. Absent that, we're going to lose it all. Mark
0: Stein's Last Call
1: If you've read Mark Stein's Passing Parade, you'll know I knew Diana Mosley of the celebrated and or notorious Mitford sisters rather well. And i mentioned before what she said to me many years ago while we were talking about a mutual friend, latterly deceased, and which she prefaced by a long, languid sigh. People die non-stop. And I didn't really get the line at the time, but as the years go by, I do. Because not only is Diana dead, but now so is her son. Desmond Guinness was a member of the famous Irish brewing family. Uh, On the other hand, it's hardly fair to refer to them as a brewing family because there is hardly any aspect of life they have not touched. If you're wondering what branch of the family he was from... Well, his grandfather was Lord Moyne, the British resident in Cairo, who was assassinated by the Stern gang in 1944, prompting Haim Weizmann, later the first president of Israel, to say that the killing of Moyne had been more painful to him than the death of his own son. Uh, The war years were tough on little Desmond Guinness. Aside from the murder of his grandfather, his own governess was said to be an MI5 agent keeping tabs on him. His mummy was jailed, and he only saw her in visiting hours because she was the wife of the British fascist leader. Uh, That wasn't the fellow who sired Desmond, by the way. Mummies. First husband was Brian Guinness. Her second was Sir Oswald Mosley. As often put it, Diana Mitford is the only person on the planet able to say that Churchill came to her first wedding and Hitler to her second. But in fact, I met uh, Desmond Guinness before I met his mum when I was a small boy. I recall him as an elegant and understatedly glamorous man. And after that uh, brief encounter, I remember noticing when he'd turn up in magazines photographed with Marianne Faithful and Mick Jagger or whoever. I don't know what it would do to you if, before your teenage years, your grandpa has been assassinated and your mum imprisoned without trial. Desmond's older brother, Jonathan, the present Lord Moyne, became an almost parodically right-wing chairman of the Conservative Party's Monday Club. I'm not sure those kind of chaps even exist in today's squishy Tory party. Uh, While standing for Parliament, Jonathan suggested that it would be far more efficient if convicted murderers should just have, at the commencement of their sentence, a set of razor blades left in their cells, which, of course, immediately led to him being nicknamed Razorblades Guinness. I was once in a restaurant late at night with some media types rather the worse for wear, and uh, when Jonathan Guinness chanced to come in, one of our number called, Oi, over here, raisers! Uh, and he did indeed come over, very sportingly. So that was the older brother. Hardcore, right-wing, super-political. His younger brother went a different route.
0: Welcome to Castletown, Ireland's largest and earliest Palladian-style house. The house was built for William Connolly, speaker of the Irish House of Commons, and the wealthiest commoner in Ireland. And it remained in the hands of the Speaker's descendants until 1965, when it was purchased by a property developer, Major Wilson. Unfortunately, the house had fallen into disrepair, but was saved in 1967 by Desmond Guinness, co-founder of the Irish Georgian Society. And soon after, the house was opened to the public and
1: restoration work began. Desmond Guinness just happened to live near Castletown House in the town's castle, a castle he bought for £15,000, which sounds on the low end for castles. But he was a gracious host, and you 2 and Bob Geldof and almost every other Irish celebrity enjoyed his hospitality over the years. But when Desmond and his wife, uh, the granddaughter of the King of Lithuania for about five months, Uh, When they'd been uh, motoring around Ireland, looking for a castle in their price range, they noticed that a lot of great Irish houses were in a terrible state of repair. At that time, there were no real planning restraints in Ireland, and indeed, not so far back in the Emerald Isles history, the more incendiary Republicans rather enjoyed burning down the country's great houses. So Mr and Mrs Guinness decided to save Irish architecture and founded the Georgian Society. Georgian Dublin was one of the great cities of Europe in the 18th century. Its architecture is defined by grand public buildings and by its broad public squares, all of which are lined by terraces of four-storey over-basement red brick houses that are rather plain outside. The only area where they were given a free hand is in the design and finish of the doorways. Inside, the houses truly come into their own. Dublin's plaster work is some of the finest to be found. Whilst Dublin's Georgian architectural heritage has its champions, the Irish Georgian Society's involvement in the promotion of Ireland's architectural heritage extends throughout the country. As the Irish government recognised in its statement on his passing, very few individuals can be said to have made as much difference to how Dublin and much of the rest of the country look today. Dead at the age of 88, the honorable Desmond Guinness. He was honorable. Ron Tudor was a legendary figure in the Australian music business as engineer, producer, record label owner and TV talent show panelist. Here's an early hit, a twisting version of The Hokey Pokey. Australia didn't know it needed a twisting version of the hokey-cokey until Ron Tudor decided to satisfy that need. That's Johnny Chester's debut single. And that's the Thunderbirds rocking up a storm behind him. Ron Tudor's big break came during the 1970 pay-for-play dispute between Australian radio and the major record companies. One consequence of that was that a lot of big UK hits were kept off the airwaves down under. So Ron, being a judge on the TV talent show New Faces and having new singers auditioning to him every week... Got a Melbourne housewife called Liv Mason to do a local cover of Mary Hopkins' Eurovision Smash.
0: Tears of rain run down my window, pain. I'm on my own again, believe me, sorrow. Sit and dream of how things might have been.
1: Mason has a very distinctive voice, one consequence of which is that if you know the Mary Hopkin record, that may sound a little low, and conversely, this may sound a little high. Tiny wings and, fly away, and take the snow back with you where it came from all that day. But
0: one I love forever is untrue. And if I could, you know that I would fly away with you.
1: Liv Mason worked out pretty well for Ron Tudor. Knock Knock, who's there, was the number three record of the year down under, and Liv became the first Australian female to get a gold record for single sales of over 50,000. So Ron Tudor figured there might be more mileage in the Knock Knock knockoff off market, and he might as well get Johnny Chester's sometime backing band Jigsaw to cover this one. So If only that radio dispute with the major labels could last forever.
0: We'd like to take
1: ourselves out today
0: with a top-selling record right across Australia. This one is by The Mixtures and the song is In The Summer Time.
1: Her daddy's rich, take her out for a meal. If her daddy's poor, just do what you feel. That's advice you can take to the bank from Mungo Jerry's, UK number one, covered down under by The Mixtures. There was just one problem with Ron Tudor's business model. The major labels were furious at the way he'd cashed in on their dispute with the radio stations, and they owned all the pressing plants in Australia, and they forbade those plants from pressing any of Ron's records. So he had smash hits, getting lots of airplay, and then found the shops had run out of copies. So he discovered a guy in New Zealand and then the Kiwi got wind that Ron was persona non grata.
0: I walk in the office one morning and there's a telex on the thing. It said, have been instructed from Australia not to manufacture your product. And I thought, bloody hell, where do you go from here? I mean, we had all this product out. All this airplay And we couldn't press them. And we had no records. So I phoned up the man in Singapore and he said, Sure, we're going to do it. So we were doing all this and we're getting big shipments of product coming through until one day when our customs agent rang and said, uh, We've got a problem. Around the parameter of the record label are the words made in Australia, just around the copyright edge of it there. Mm-hmm. And these records were made, were pressed in Singapore, and the customer's refusing to release them. So he's saying that the, he's talking about the physical pressing and you're talking about the recording yeah, so, and the, made in Australia. So the argument was, I said, "Oh, hey, hang on, I mean, I said, the piece of vinyl on its own is worth nothing. I said, what gives it value is what's in the grooves, And what's in the grooves was made in Australia. And the customs still wouldn't wear
1: it. Ron Tudor's whole life was that kind of battle. In return, he gave Australia Daddy Cool, sung by a guy with a chipmunk's helium voice. (laughs) See, like a Fool Bye Bye Daddy Cool Dead at the age of 96 Ron Tudor MBE Member of the Queen's Most Excellent Order of the British Empire That'll do it for today's show I'll see you on the telly with Tucker Tomorrow night, Wednesday Stay safe, stay free
0: Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. reserved.